It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, and I'm so excited to be with you here today. Thank you for listening in. You know, we have a lot of opportunity where I am able to share with you insights from the Bibles. We go deeper into the Word of God. And then there are those times when I have a special guest with us here on the program. And today is one of those days. We have a very special guest with us here today. His, his name, one that you'll know, William Federer. Now, Bill, as, as he goes by, he's written more than 20 books on America's godly history, uh, just a number of books of insights into uh, history and, and biblical understanding and training and just over and over. One of my favorites is America's God and Country. It's one of those books that I keep on my bookshelf because it's one of those that anytime you want a quotation, you want to understand the history of America's rich heritage, that is one of the resources you have to have on hand. He's also a radio host. He hosts a program called the American Minute, and it goes out on radio stations all across the country. In fact, right here on our station as well, in which he gives us some insights on what happened on dates, both historically and biblically, taking that historical knowledge that we read about in history books, but also the biblical history and bring them all together into one. And it's a beautiful way to educate Americans far and wide. You, you've got to hear this particular program. So you're in for a treat today because Bill is with us and we're going to be talking about some of America's Judeo-Christian history, some of our, our rich establishment as a nation, where we are today and what we can do about it. Because I know as your listener today, you're probably thinking uh, maybe a little bit of burden every time you turn on the news, every time you see the latest debate, you're frustrated maybe by the affairs in our country today. And so this is one of those opportunities where we are going to talk about these issues and guide you in how to pray and how to be active in doing something in our nation that will make a difference for this generation and the next. One of my favorite quotes from Woodrow Wilson is, A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. And so today, let's get into that. Bill, welcome to the program today. Well, it's great to be with you, John. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you on. I I have been a follower of yours for some time. I follow the American Minute on the website and receive that via email. I've had the privilege of sitting in in some of your many talks across the country, reading your work, and I'm always inspired and encouraged, and I know our listeners will be today. So I'm so grateful that you had the time to join us today. Well, I'm honored. Now, I, I have to ask you this. Listening to you, it is one of those wonderful experiences where it doesn't even look like you're looking at notes. You you just have this history of America deeply ingrained into your veins, the, the love of the Lord that just exudes from you. You seem to have this encyclopedia in the mind. How did God call you to be one of America's foremost historians of biblical and world history and America's rich history? How did, where did that begin? Uh, well, I tell uh, people that when I speak in schools, I say, look around the room. Everything you see in this room was once an idea in somebody's head. 
Somebody thought of this building. Somebody thought of the electric lights, Thomas Edison. Somebody thought of the chair you're sitting in. Somebody thought of the clothes you're wearing, gave it to some seamstress. You know, somebody thought of the pen you have in your hand. Somebody thought of the, you know, the calculator, I mean, the, the phone. I mean, it was all just simply an idea, a thought. And they mm-hmm. said, you know what, I'm going to work with this thought. I, it was uh, Thomas Edison that said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. <laughs> and so thoughts are free, and, and, and you can have a victim, victimhood mentality that says, oh, gee, I've had bad things happen to me. I need somebody to take care of me the rest of, your, of my life. Or you can have an answer mentality saying, no, there's problems out there. I'm going to get ideas from the Lord to fix it. And uh, anyway, uh, so uh, I was working in accounting and then volunteering at, at church, and then after a while we ended up becoming uh, Sunday school teachers and, long story short, youth ministers, and then we were, got to the place where we were teaching Bible classes, and I noticed um, uh, these lawsuits of them wanting to take God out of the pledge and God mm. out of the schools and tell kids they can't pray, and so I started noticing uh, quotes uh, and uh, thought, I'm going to go to the library and check out a book about what the Founding Fathers said about God. I thought, certainly somebody wrote that book by now, and I couldn't find one, so I started to re- read through all the colonial charters all the state constitutions, all the messages and papers of the presidents, all the Massachusetts blue laws, where they actually put a scripture verse after the law, mm. um, all the uh, journals of the Continental Congress, where they would have days of fasting and prayer. Um, you know, during the Civil War, Lincoln had a day of fasting. During World War One, Woodrow Wilson had a day of fasting. And anyway, I compiled this. Uh, somebody had just graduated to a 486 computer, so they gave me their 386 <laughs> computer. And so I'm typing in all these codes, printing it out, you know, and uh, and then finally uh, had a typeset and turned it into a book. And um, it was one that did well. It sold over half a million copies, America's God and Country Encyclopedia quotations, and it sort of opened the door for me to transition into doing this full-time. I've written about 20 books. But I tell people that there's 88 keys on a piano. It's unlimited the number of songs you can write with those. The one side of your brain says, oh, all the good books have been written, all the good... No, it's unlimited what's out there. So you get ideas and take... You know, I've helped lots of pastors uh, write books. They say, go through my book, pull out some quotes, and start putting it together and have your own book. You know, Uh, every apple has seeds for more apples. So um, anyway, but uh, America is unique in world history, and I think that when we go back and look at our godly Christian heritage, we'll see that it's an integral part of the form of government that we have. Mm, amen. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today, because I, I had the privilege of sitting in on Breaking the Silence, a, a conference you did here in Colorado Springs, and uh, you were one of the keynote speakers, and I could not write fast enough, and I think that that's where our audience is going to be today. Uh, so let me just put a prompt in here. For those who, who are copious note-takers, you'll have the opportunity to rehear this broadcast. You will listen. You can listen again right at calvaryfountain.com. So that way you can just listen in, enjoy what you're about to share with us, uh, because, I, I, like I said, I think I went through a whole pencil as you were sharing about America's rich history history, how we were founded, why it's so important to understand our history, because it's so diluted now, and it seems like there's an agenda to manipulate our history, change the history books, and ultimately remove God from the equation. So can you share with us some of those insights you shared with that audience that day? Well, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Arthur Schlesinger, who was on John F. Kennedy's staff, he said, history is to the nation as memory is to the individual. Have you ever met an individual who's lost their memory? Maybe they have Alzheimer's. Well, in America, we have, like, national Alzheimer's. It's uh, something that is happening maybe by accident, but maybe on purpose. 
and uh, there's a communist tactic called deconstruction, where you separate people from their past, get them into this neutral where they don't know where they came from, and you can brainwash them into your communist future. It's actually a sales technique. If I was going to sell toothpaste, the first thing I would do is to say negative things about the toothpaste you're currently using. You're mm-hmm. using that old stuff, it'll eat the enamel off your teeth. And then you're repulsed by it. Now I got you into this neutral where you're sort of open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there nowadays? And then I can give you my pitch for this tartar control breast freshener stuff. And so what they do is they say negative things about the founder of a country. Uh, you know, in China, during the 1950s, they had a cultural revolution, and they killed anyone that knew anything about their past. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, anybody with a college degree, anybody that wore glasses, they killed 80 million people. They destroyed libraries and museums and Chinese artifacts so they could have this mass of young, ed- uneducated uh, kids you know, that they could brainwash into the People's Republic of China. Uh, the French did that during the French Revolution. Uh, they destroyed all of their uh, history. Uh, the Saint Genevieve, this girl that got all of Paris to fast and pray when Attila the Hun was scourging Europe and headed toward Paris, and, and they pray and he turns aside. Well, during the French Revolution, they dig up her grave and destroy the bones. I mean, they, they, they want to get rid of this history and heritage. Why? So that they could get the people into this neutral, that they could brainwash them into whatever future. And so in America, they say, well, you know, they dwell on the fact that, you know, the founding fathers Fathers were human, and they had faults, and yeah, they took some took land from Indians, and some, uh, you know, had slaves, and so the the kids are repulsed by them, and then mm-hmm. they get the kids into this neutral, sort of a common core. They're open minded. What are all the beliefs out there nowadays? And then they can give them their pitch for this LGBT, you know, Islam is great, and so forth. And so Europe went through this. Europe went from a Judeo Christian past into a secular free sex French Revolution neutral, and now Europe is going into an Islamic future. And so uh, part of us forgetting our history is just our laziness, but another part is an actual part of an agenda called deconstruction. Well, let's go back and try to give back our memory. Uh, And so uh, people forget how unique America is in world history. There's approximately 6,000 years of recorded human history. Writing was invented. The very... uh, skill, the very art, the the very technological uh, achievement of writing was invented around 3300 B.C. Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Um, started as an accounting method, and uh, the first invention was the plow, and then they started hitting each other with it, and the people gravitated together into cities for protection. And then you get some people together, and one gets to be the bossy person, and after a while, his kids end up becoming a hereditary monarchy, claiming that they're more important than everybody else. And, and so the, the kings claim they owned everything, and they wanted accountants to keep track of it all. And so they, you know, in China, the emperors, their scribes, kept track with knots in ropes. You know, sort of like an abacus with sticks and little beads. And well, in Sumeria, they kept track with tokens, little clay tokens in a dish in front of a you know, storeroom full of grain and however many tokens. At the, then they started making markings in the tokens, sort of like you do the tallying one, two, three, four with a line, and then you draw a line across for five. You know, and mm-hmm. um, and so this turns into this Sumerian cuneiform, and it was around thirty three hundred B.C. And then it started keeping track of the king's decrees, some astrology, some genealogies. Around 3000 BC, Egypt uh, invented hieroglyphics, uh, about 3000 of them. And uh, in China, around 2600 BC, the Yellow Emperor uh, invented Chinese characters, around 10,000 of them. And, uh, and so, if writing was invented around three or 4000 BC, and we're around 2000 AD, so three or four BC to 2000 AD, that's around five or 6,000 years of recorded human history. 
So if we round it out to 6,000, 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. We've all met someone who's lived 100 years, maybe a grandma. We're talking 60 grandmas, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. So it's not that long ago. But what do we see in these records? We see a theme that power wants to concentrate. first one was the Tower of Babel with Nimrod wanting to concentrate power. Jewish commentators said that he wanted to build it so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. Hmm. Anyway, uh, so they had this defiant, well, God sees this concentrated power, comes down, confuses the languages, and the people what? They scatter. And so when I speak in uh, rooms, I'll say, okay, everybody hold up a fist in one hand, say concentrated power, open an open palm with the other hand, say separated power, then back to the fist. I said, that's world history. For most of world history, power is concentrated into the hands of the Nimrods, the Pharaohs, Caesars, Kaisers, Sultans, Tsars, Maharajas, Chinese emperors, Aztec Montezumas. The name changes, but the function remains the same. So like the Lord of the Rings, everyone wants this ring of power. And it's a, uh, I believe it goes back to the fall in the garden and Cain killing Abel. And you put some babies in a playpen, one of them will take the rattle from the others. Put some kids on a playground, one of them is the bully hogging the ball. Put some natives in the woods, one of them is the Indian chief. And you put them in an inner city, one of them is the gang, gang leader. And all a king is, in a sense, is a glorified gang leader. And it's this hierarchical system where if you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. So for most of world history, equality was how close of an orbit can you get to the king? Hmm. And so it took centuries for America to break away from a king. King George III was the most powerful king in world history. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had the Americas and Canada and British Guyana and uh, Barbados and Bermuda and Jamaica and, uh, you know, Hong Kong and all of India, a quarter of the world's population right there, Australia, New Zealand, uh, countries in Africa. And America's going to break away from this king, and we have no army and no navy. And when our founders get a chance to set up a government, they want to run as far away from a king as possible. So they take the power of a king and they break it into three branches. Then they pit these against each other. And then they tie it up with ten handcuffs, we call the first ten amendments, and then they separate powers federal to state level. All the Constitution is is a bunch of hurdles to prevent the rubber band from snapping back into the hands of a king. They designed a government that was slow, intentional. So it's slow to make in good decisions, but thank God it's slow to make in irreversible bad decisions. Hmm. They realized it could take a lifetime to build a mansion and one irresponsible match to burn the thing down in a day. So they wanted to have it be really slow. Go back to the House, go back to the Senate, you know, go, and, and so forth. Anyway, so America is unique. And so. If we look through history, we see kings and kings and kings, and as the centuries go on, these kings get bigger and bigger and bigger. Sargon of Akkadia conquers from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean around 2500 B.C., and then you've got the king of Assyria, and then the king of Babylon, and then the 2,000 years and 33 major Egyptian dynasties, and then you have Cyrus of Persia and Darius, and then Alexander the Great, and, and 5,000 years and 18 major Chinese dynasties ruled by emperors, and then Indian Maharajas, and then the, the Roman emperors and the Byzantine emperors and the Muslim sultans and, and, and Genghis Khan conquers from Korea to Hungary and, and he has the largest contiguous land empire in world history. But finally, the, the king of England was the biggest. And so let's uh, try to see how America got this unique opportunity to break away. And um, 
How am I doing time-wise? Oh, you're doing fine. I, we've, we've got about probably nine minutes left, and uh, I think our audience is just hanging on to the seat of their pants here. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to jump in. Uh, so we have the Roman Empire becomes Christian with Constantine around 313 A.D., and eventually the whole Roman Empire becomes Christian. And uh, then they have the Muslims attack. So the, we start with Muhammad. In 610 A.D., Muhammad started his faith, and he was in Arabia and he was a religious leader in Mecca, and he only made 70 converts in 12 years. He gets confrontational. The people of Mecca chase him out for disturbing the peace. He has no place to go. He is a Muslim refugee. Tries going to a city called Al-Taif. They pelt him with rocks and stones and throw dirt on him and jeer him out of town. They don't want him. He has no place to live. He goes to a Jewish city in the north called Medina. Three Jewish tribes control the city. They're really nice. They let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. He goes into the minority neighborhoods, and he begins to organize a following amongst these pagans that have no voice in the Jewish government, and so he plays upon their victimhood, and and so we're familiar with the term of organizing in the community, right? So he gets a following, goes back to the Jews, and pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically by making a treaty. The Jews do, and then um, Muhammad's now officially a political leader. And then something happens, Muhammad's followers in Mecca, they get pushy, argumentative, confrontational, and threatening, the way some of his followers are today. They get chased out of town for disturbing the peace. They have nowhere to go. They are Muslim refugees. They go north to the Jewish city of Medina. The Jews are nice. They let him in as Muslim immigrants. They go to Muhammad's neighborhood, and Muhammad allows them to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, his attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. So Muhammad gets a whole chapter of the Quran on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. It's Surah 8, chapter 8. He gets a fifth of the booty. And so the Meccans send a thousand soldiers to protect their caravan, and Muhammad with 300 defeats a thousand at the Battle of Badra in 624 A.D. Here he is outnumbered three to one, and he wins, so he takes this as confirmation he's supposed to be a military leader. And he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. He even used the catapult when he attacked a city called Al-Taif. And when he was told the catapult was killing women and children, his response was, they are among them. They got to be killed too. So suicide bombers and ISIS killers and San Bernardino killers say it's okay to kill innocent people to advance Islam because Muhammad did. And since Muhammad is the best Muslim, he's the perfect Muslim, if uh, someone wants to be a better Muslim today, they're willing to be like him, religiously, politically, and militarily. So it's a three-fold system. Like Caesar's three steps, vini, vidi, vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Muhammad's three steps was immigrate, increase, eliminate. Immigrate as a Muslim refugee into a non-Muslim host victim country, so to speak, live off their livelihood, almost sort of parasitically, and then get involved in politics and demand accommodation. And then Muhammad uh, uh, claimed to have gotten offended at something one of the Jewish tribes did. He whips his followers into a frenzy, and they attack that Jewish neighborhood and chase them out of Medina. And the other two Jewish tribes kept their heads low, thinking, well, maybe he won't notice us, and that Jewish tribe was always a thorn in our side. And so he began to do this divide and conquer. If he would have come in and said, hey, I'm going to get rid of all the Jews, they would have banded together. Then he picks on the second Jewish tribe, 
and they do something that quote-unquote offends him and his followers. He whips his followers into a jihad frenzy. They attack that second Jewish neighborhood and confiscate all their property, chase them out of town. This actually set a precedent in Islam called hudna, H-U-D-N-A, hudna. It means when you're weak, you make treaties until you get strong enough to disregard them. Hmm. So a treaty is a temporary thing. Here we are saying, well, Israel has to make a treaty with the Palestinians. The Palestinian concept of a treaty is just a ceasefire to restock missiles. Here we are talking about a treaty with Iran. The Iranian concept of a treaty is just to put your enemy off till you finish your nuclear missiles. Hmm. And so uh, that's called Hudna. Well, the third Jewish tribe in Medina, Muhammad bottles them up for 25 days. When they surrender, he brings them into the market and chops off their head, six or seven hundred of them. Then he sells women and children into slavery. So within five years of Muhammad coming into the Jewish city of Medina as a immigrant, there's not a Jew left in the city of Medina. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. And within five years of his death, his Muslim warriors eliminate every pre-existing culture in Arabia. And then they conquer Jerusalem. Uh, Caliph Umar conquers the Byzantine Christian city of Jerusalem. Then Muslims conquer Syria. Syria was the first country to completely be Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. Antioch, Syria is where the name Christian was first used. And there's more ancient Christian writings in the Syrian language of Syriac than any other language other than Greek and Latin, hmm. until Caliph Umar conquered. And then Egypt used to be Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark, that wrote the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until Amir ibn Awas invades. And Caliph um, uh, Umar destroys the, the great museum and, and library in Cairo. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Boom, all conquered by the Umayyad Muslims. And then they cross the Strait of Gibraltar and conquer Spain in the year 711, carry away thousands into slavery. The Muslims are on horseback with stirrups and scimitar swords. The Europeans are still fighting on foot with heavy metal swords. Then they cross the Pyrenees Mountains, conquer southern France. The Pope, Gregory, calls for anybody that can fight to join Charles Martel. He was the grandfather of Charlemagne. He gets 30,000 volunteers outside of Paris at Tours. They're all on foot. And he wins the battle uh, in 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Mohammed in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in a military campaign. And had Charles Martel not stopped them, we would be speaking Arabic right now. Well, when the Muslims conquered all that so fast, it was a heart attack to what was left of the, the Roman Empire. And mm -hmm. so uh, it was... Not only did they conquer, they held back the ships of trade. And one of the things that was traded across the Mediterranean was papyrus. These were reeds that grew along the Nile Delta that they dried out and used for paper. And so suddenly there was a paper shortage in Europe, and they wrote fewer books, and we call this the beginning of the Dark Ages. Huh. And they held back so many ships of all kinds of stuff that it was a heart attack to the Roman economy. Sort of like if China held back their ships, uh, our Walmart shelves would be empty and our economy would have a heart attack. And so this was the beginning of the Dark Ages. Hmm. And so uh, then they conquer into what is today Turkey, come around the other side of the Mediterranean, and um, all seven churches mentioned in the Book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. All these cities that New Testament letters are written to, Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia, Corinth, Thessalonica, all conquered by the Muslim Turks. And uh, the Greek Christians beg the West for help. The West sends help. It's called the what? The Crusades. Mm -hmm. That's what the Crusades were all about. And um, anyway, uh, 
Then finally, they conquered Constantinople in the year 1453. It was the biggest city in Europe uh, where the Black Sea empties into the Mediterranean. When Constantinople fell in 1453, it ends the land trade routes to India and China, causing the Europeans to try to look for a sea route to India and China. People forget China was technologically superior to Europe. Marco Polo goes over there in 1271. Marco Polo brings back to Europe spaghetti, gunpowder, coal, these burning rocks. The Chinese invented piñatas, the compass, thread from worms, silkworms, China plates. We still call it China to this day. China invented the wheelbarrow, the Pony Express, and they invented paper from tree pulp rather than from papyrus reeds. And what did they do with this paper? They made the first paper currency in the world. It was called the Yuan because it was during the Yuan Dynasty. And um, so China was technologically superior, and India had teas, dyes, and spices, so the Europeans wanted to trade. But when the Muslims conquered Central Asia and sacked Constantinople in 1453, it ended the land trade routes. And so that's when Columbus set sail looking for a sea route. Columbus runs into some islands. He thinks he's in India, so he names the people Indians. Think of it. We never would have called Native Americans Indians if it had not been for Islamic Jihad, the Islamic State, the Caliphate, the religious, political, military empire that the Muslim sultans had. Mm. And as they were conquering into uh, Greece, the Greek scholars picked up and fled because the Muslims were destroying their uh, graves and churches and libraries and museums. And so the Greeks flee to Florence, Italy, bringing their Greek knowledge, and this flood of Greek stuff into Florence is called the Renaissance, uh. the rebirth of knowledge of all this Greek stuff. But the Greek scholars also fled with their Greek New Testaments. And so now, in the late 1400s, these European Bible scholars are translating the Bible not just to Latin, but all the way back to Greek. This lays the foundation for something we call the Reformation. Okay, now you're going to have to hold there. We're going to have to keep people waiting a whole week to get the rest of the story, but I think they know where this is going. We're now into the early days here of uh, of the Reformation period. And so I know I'm going to have to do that to you. If you're listening to Engage in Truth and, and, and you, you're a weekly listener and you know that we're going to have to keep you waiting until next week. So, Bill, thank you for being on. Can you stay with us and we'll record part two of this? And I'd for, be happy to. And for all of you listening, you're just going to have to wait and it's going to be special. You're not going to want to miss this. So thank you for listening today. We'll see you next week right here on Engage in Truth. <laughs> 